My name's Chris, if you're new. Uh, nice to meet you, one of the leaders here. If you have a Bible, grab it. Open it up to the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table. Our gift to you, you can download a Bible app on your phone. We love to teach through uh, books of the Bible, verse by verse. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for some time. And we're in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, um, where we are this morning, is one of the probably most misunderstood passages of Scripture. Uh, if you've been in church for any length of time, I can almost guarantee that you have uh, abused this text in some way. Uh, or have had it abused uh, by someone to you, okay? So that's what, that's what we got in front of us. So Matthew chapter 7, we're going to get uh, right to work. Here's what Jesus says in verse 7. He says this, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. So Jesus here is uh, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He's been preaching this. This is Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and where we are this morning, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is teaching and he's preaching to a group of people about what it means to be a part of his kingdom. And where we find ourselves now is kind of uh, Jesus is landing the plane. He's, ra- he's, he's beginning the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and he says here, he gives uh, these instructions to us, to his people, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock, and the door will be open. So what's Jesus saying here? He's, he's inviting us to come to him and pray. Jesus is saying, as this Sermon on the Mount winds down, he's saying, come and find me, come and talk to me, come and pray to me. And now I want you to notice something. You don't see this in your English text, but in the Greek, which the New Testament was originally written, um, these three words, ask, seek, and knock, are actually written in the emphatic present. Meaning what Jesus is not saying here is, ask one time, seek one time, knock one time. All you have to do is do that once. No, no, this is like this ongoing ask, this ongoing seek, this ongoing knock. He's inviting us to come to him, to pursue him, if you will, on an ongoing basis. Really what Jesus is calling us to here is what we would call perseverance, to persevere. Now, now why would Jesus call us to persevere? Well, it's Really simple, because as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been laying out for us what we've been calling the constitution of the kingdom. In other words, what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. So where Jesus is king, where he has dominion, where he has rule, where he has reign, we then come underneath the kingship or the lordship of Jesus. We are his citizens. He's saying, this is what it looks like. But as you've been following along with us, or if you've been following along with us, you, you've probably noticed that a lot of the things that Jesus has been calling us to do, they swim completely upstream from culture. So Jesus has been laying out like a marriage ethic, a sex ethic, a work ethic, the way we operate, the way we live our lives, what we do with our time, what we do with our money, how we treat our neighbors, how we treat our enemies. He's been laying all this out, and it's completely contrary to the way that culture calls us to live. But even deeper than that, it's completely contrary to the way that the natural inclinations of our heart want to live. And so there's this conflict that has been happening as Jesus has been unpacking for us the Sermon on the Mount. That's why every Sunday when we get here, we're like, oh man, this is going to be the worst, uh, hardest portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we've ever come up against. And it feels like we say that every week, and we probably could say that every week, because every week Jesus is laying out for us a way to live which he says is going to be better for us, but which we say we don't actually want to do. We don't want to live the way you've called us to live. And so Jesus anticipating that these, this group of people are going to go out and try and live out this kingdom life. 
He's anticipating that. He's recognizing that they're going to come up against hardship, that the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Chris, the kingdom of you, it's going to press up against the kingdom of Jesus. There's going to be this conflict that happens. In other words, what Jesus is doing here, he's kind of preparing them for the hardship that it is to actually follow him and live in light of his kingdom. I mean, this is not unlike, you know, if you've ever been to summer camp before, right? You come, you, you come off of this like week at summer camp and you have like this camp high, right? You just like, speaker comes, he tells you all these funny stories, he whips you up into a frenzy and then you go back out into the world and you go from like this bubble of camp where like everything is about Jesus and the community is pure and then you come into the real world and it's super hard. And it's really hard and to follow Jesus and you don't really want to and you, all of these commitments you made, I'll go anywhere, Jesus, I'll do anything. These are the kinds of declarations we make at summer camp when we're hopped up on sugar and overtired and pressured and all the band's playing softly and you, know, you make all these crazy decisions, right? And then you come home and you're like, wait a minute, I'm like the only one in my school that actually thinks like this. This is hard. I'm not sure I want to do it. Jesus is saying, this is the Christian life, right? Like we just sang like all this crazy stuff that we don't even think about because we do it all the time. And we confessed all these crazy things and we don't even think about it because we're just so used to it. We don't even recognize that some of the words we just sang are like completely countercultural. Like these are life altering truths. And then when the kingdom of Jesus comes in conflict, like tomorrow, when you go to the office, this afternoon, when you get home, heck, when you get into the lobby and your kids are doing whatever it is that your kids are going to do, which I'm sure, like my kids hang out in the car waiting for me. And they seriously, you've heard this. They just honk the horn, like nonstop honk it. They just honk, like, honk it. They actually like bribe Lucas to do it. Cause he's like, eh, you know, a little, we love Lucas. And he just honks the horn nonstop. And then the other kids are like, we weren't doing it. It was Lucas. And it's like, no, I don't want to live in the kingdom of Jesus. I want to live in the kingdom of punch you in the face. Like, that's the kingdom I want to live in. But Jesus says it's hard. Like, it's hard to follow me. It's hard to live in my kingdom. This shouldn't surprise us. If you go back, like, one page, turn one page to the left, or swipe or whatever, uh, to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5. I think these verses will be on the screen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. This is the beatitude. So this is like his intro to what it means to be a kingdom person. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say, blessed are you, uh, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil uh, against you because of me. In other words, what Jesus is saying is like, are you sure you want to do this? Because it's going to be really hard. It's easy right now. The 90 minutes here, it's easy, right? It's easy. It's fun. It's comfortable. It's safe. But it's about to get really hard. As you, as you take the kingdom of Jesus into the kingdom of the world, and now this starts to define all of your life, are you sure? That's why Jesus says things like, count the cost before you decide if you actually want to follow me. Like he's not like soft selling what it means to be a follower of his, right? He's never like lowering the bar to make it as easy as possible for as many people to get in. He's constantly doing everything he can in his power to convince you not to follow him so that when you make the decision to follow him, you'll actually know what you're signing up for. That's why he says things like, you want to be my disciple? That's fine. You can be my disciple. Here's it's simple. Here's what you need to do. When I'm done this sermon, I need you to, with every, 
head bowed and every eye closed, just raise your hand and repeat after me, and you get to be my disciple. No. So what he says. You want to be my disciple? Here's what you do. Deny yourself. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, he goes even a step further. Take up your cross. Cross meaning instrument of death, meaning total death to self. Then you can come and follow me. And so the whole way along, Jesus is saying, this is going to be difficult. Uh, this week, we, a bunch of the staff went to Vancouver for a couple of days for a conference in Vancouver. And uh, part, part of that, there was this kind of church planter track. And they asked me to uh, speak at it. I'm laughing because I, I misremembered when I was supposed to speak. And so Andrew was like, hey, dude, you're speaking in like an hour and a half. I'm like, no, no, it's not till tomorrow. I'm going to work on the Airbnb tonight. He's like, no, no, like you're on an hour and a half. I'm like, oh, what am I speaking about? So I just quickly ran to Starbucks and prayed and wrote things down. But um, I, I went on the website. I'm like, what am I supposed to be talking about? Oh, what are the successful characteristics of a church planter, right? So I got up in front of this group of 20 or 30 church planters or potential church planters as people who are interested in church planting. And here's what I said to them. I said, guys, this is the stupidest question. It's the dumbest question you could ever ask. So I, I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why I think it's a dumb question, but here's the question I'm more interested in asking. How are you, if you're actually going to plant a church, how are you going to survive church planting? Forget about succeeding. Success could be the worst thing that happens to you. How are you going to actually survive it? Because church planting sucks. It's like getting kicked in the teeth over and over again. People are going to turn their back on you. They're going to reject you. They're going to say horrible things about you. Your expectations are going to go unmet. All of your idolatry is going to come to the surface. And it is going to be the worst thing you've ever done. Here's the sign-up list. Anybody interested? And I was just trying to be honest with them because I didn't want to get out. I didn't want them to get out there and think that this was going to be easy. They have all these visions of grandeur about what it's going to be like to plant a church, and it usually involves them on the stage and large crowds of people sitting at their feet just hoping to glean from their wisdom, right? I mean, if I'm honest, that's what my vision of church planting was when I was started because I was young and stupid and dumb. I didn't know any better. When I was asked if you could do anything different, what would you do? I said, I would wait five years. I was 32. I wasn't even as old as Jesus, when he started his public ministry and I thought I could plant a church, I'm dumb. Now the grace of God covers a multitude of sins to be sure, but I didn't want them to be surprised. You know, young married couple comes for marriage counseling, right? And they're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. They just can't wait to get married. They're so excited. They're sitting on the couch. They're looking at each other, like longing in their eyes. And they just think this is going to be the greatest thing that has ever happened to them. And what does Chris do? right? Grumpy old Chris sits them down and says, this is going to be the worst thing you've ever done. <laughs> and for the next six weeks, my goal is to try and convince you not to be married. I'm going to get you. We've never fought before. Okay, I'm, well, here, here's our first exercise. Uh, you know, male, tell female three things that you want to see changed about her that you think would improve your relationship. Oh, we've had our first fight. This is wonderful. <laughs> this is wonderful. Okay. Why do I do that? Why, why? Because I want them to know what they're signing up for. No one else is going to tell them the truth. Everyone else are going to watch Jerry Maguire. You had me at hello. And they think everything's going to be wonderful and beautiful and blissing. Blissing, that's not even a word. Blissful, blissful. And it's not. Anyone who's been married for more than six seconds knows that it sucks. It's hard. There are things that we enjoy about it, but it is hard. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, think about this. 
You're excited about this kingdom living. You're excited about being on mission. You're excited about gospel saturation. You're excited about, you know, being a missionary to the city, living in light of the gospel. It sounds great on paper. They always only tell you the best stories all the time, but the reality is it's very, very, very hard to be my disciple. Are you sure? And some of you get this. Like some of you are here this morning and you're like, I get it. I don't need Jesus to convince me that this is really hard because I already know it. You're here and you're tired. Life has just been kicking you in the teeth. Life has been difficult. Forget about following Jesus. You're not even thinking about following Jesus. You're thinking about how do I survive this moment? And you're here, but you're not really here. You're here because you're supposed to be here. You're here because your wife wants you here. You're here to set a good example for the kids. You got dragged here. And, and you don't remember the last time that you felt it, right? Felt it, whatever that means. And you're sitting here this morning and you feel like a phony. Jesus is saying, persevere. He's got good news for us. I, I can't tell you how many times, and this, maybe this is just the season we're in. It's, it's been a weird, uh, you know, see, like literal season as people that live in Victoria where we see the sun like for six minutes a day and it's like dark and we're coming out of that and it's sunny, but now there's snow. So we have other reasons to be ticked off at the world. But I, but I keep hearing this like, oh, I'm burned out. And, and I don't, I don't want to demean that. I mean, I think people are, genuinely experiencing tire. I don't feel like serving anymore. I don't feel like being in community. I feel like I need to pull. I feel like I'm tired. I'm exhausted. This is too hard. I don't want to do it anymore. And Jesus is going, I know. I know. So ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Now, what is he talking about? Here's his good news. Here's his good word for us. Verse Eight, look at what he says next. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, uh, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Now, what's he talking about? This is important, okay? This is where, uh, this is where you have used and abused or had this verse used and abused over and over and over again. This is where the prosperity gospel guys go, look at what it says. This is wonderful. We can build our whole church on verse 8, All you have to do is ask God for something, and it says it right here. God's not a liar, so he's going to have to give it to you. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is seek. All you have to do is knock, and he will give you whatever the desires of your heart are. You sprinkle a little Jeremiah 29, 11 in there, for I know the plans God has for you. Plans not to harm you, but to prosper you. And what happens? We start to think that this verse is actually about our well-being. It's about our, our wants. God's, God's number one goal in life is to give us the desires of our heart. Here's the problem. In order to take this verse and make it mean that, you have to completely rip it out of its context. See, there's a natural flow to what Jesus is saying here. You can't just take this verse out. If you take the, any verse out of any part of the Bible, you can make it say anything you want it to say. But you have to understand there's a flow to the way that, that Jesus is preaching and teaching here. There's a flow to what he's trying to get after. And that these verses flow right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. 
And so is Jesus saying, you can have whatever you want? No, he's not. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, to follow me is going to be very hard. This whole Sermon on the Mount has been about you denying yourself, you dying, you coming to me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Week after week, we come to the end of whatever it is Jesus has been talking about, and we just kind of throw our hands up, and we go, how are we ever going to do this? How are we ever going to follow Jesus? How are we ever going to obey him? And the answer is always the same. I don't know if you've noticed this. If you've been coming here for any length of time, the sermon's pretty much the same every week, okay? Hate to break it to you. Spoiler alert for the next 20 years, as long as I'm doing most of the preaching, this is what the sermon's gonna be like. Here's what Jesus said you're supposed to do. Here's why you can't do it, because you suck. And now you need Jesus and he can actually help you do it. Every week, so come to Jesus. All right, you guys notice that? Anyone picking up what we're throwing down here? We're a band with one song. That's it, Jesus. And so what, what Jesus has been doing time and time and time again is trying to drive us to this place where we go, I can't actually love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. I'm not actually merciful because I actually think I'm awesome. I'm not poor in spirit. I don't want to be persecuted. I do look at a woman lust, with lust in my heart. Therefore, I've committed adultery. with her. I get so angry at the smallest things and I'm a murderer. I do judge other people all the time, like nonstop. I'm in a constant state of judgment, especially when I go to Walmart uh, or Superstore. Like, I don't know, this, it just gets ramped up like a lot. And Jesus is saying, you need to come to me. In, in order to persevere, in order to actually live out what I have been calling you to, here's what you need to do. You need to ask, you need to seek, and you need to knock. You need to ask, and you need to seek, and you need to knock. You need to come to Jesus, and you need to ask him to give you the power, the ability, the motivation, the desire to follow him. You need to seek. Seek after who? Seek after Jesus. You need to seek after his presence. You need to run towards him. You need to get down on your face and acknowledge that he is Lord. And you need to knock where? On the door. And ask Jesus to open the door to his sufficiency to satisfy you. Because you cannot do this in your own strength. Listen, if you're here and you're in a season of desert, of dry, of hard, of longing, of waiting for Jesus to show up. He's saying, come after me. He's saying, pursue me. He's saying, I actually want to meet with you. I want to be enough for you. I want you to experience the fullness of who I am. Because listen, the reality is this. If you are here and you're tired and you're exhausted and you're burnt out and you're frustrated, that's not the fruit of feasting on Jesus. If you're here and life feels hopeless and despairing, that's not because you've been sitting at the feet of Jesus asking him to fill you. 
And what Jesus is offering us here, what he's inviting us to do is, yes, come to him and pray. Come to him and experience him and meet with him. But listen, this is beautiful. This is the best news. Actually, this is the only news I have for you. It's come to him and experience him and let him be enough to get you through whatever it is you are going through or at least to get you through until tomorrow. And then let him do it again the next day. Jesus is saying, ask, seek, knock. Yes, yes, the door will be open. I will give you I will give you all the grace that you want and all the grace that you need to get through whatever it is that you need to get through. It's good news for us, church. Then he goes on and look at what he says next. Verse 9. He says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks, verse 10, or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a snake. Verse 11, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So here Jesus comes along and he says, okay, so if you come to me, if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, I'm going to give you everything that you need. Okay, now this is important here. Okay, this is really important. I'm going to give you everything that you need. And then look at what he says here. He says, like, I'm a good dad, right? Like a good father is not going to give you a stone if you ask for bread, and he's not going to give you a snake if you ask for a fish. So, so there's an obvious tension here, right? There's like this tension in this text where some of you are sitting here this morning and you're thinking, um, like, God's wrong. Like he, he's made a mistake. Like I must've got the wires crossed in the, in the asking, seeking, knocking part. Because if you look at my life right now, here's what it looks like. I've been asking for bread and I've been getting stones. Uh, I've been asking for fish and look around, look at my marriage, look at my relationship with my kids, look at where things are at, look at the state of my heart, look at my health, look at whatever, whatever it is that you're focusing on right now. I asked for fish, he gave me a snake. So, so this is wrong. Jesus is Wrong. Now look at what he says in verse 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So so here's what Jesus is saying. Well, on the surface, it might actually look like the things you've been given are bad. There is a reality here that we need to wrestle with. And And I don't get how this works. This is a big philosophical, theological question. But it is one that we need to grapple and wrestle with that just because you have something bad going on in your life right now, it does not mean that God has not given you exactly what you need. And for some of you, that's a very, very hard word to hear this morning. You see, there's this reality that you and I are limited in our scope, limited in our ability to see what's happening in the world. We can't see the beginning to the end. We can't see everything that is happening all the time. In other words, we're not infinitely wise. And so we don't understand everything. We think we understand everything that we need, but we don't understand everything that we need. Uh, There's this thing happening. It's not new because I make fun of it all the time, but it feels like it's more pronounced. Like in 
parenting, and I'm just going to just jump all over a bunch of landmines here, and we'll shrink the church. It's all good. Don't miss the point, though, before you get mad, okay? There's this thing happening in, like, the parenting world where we've elevated our kids to this weird level, right? Like, out of the overflow of the heart, the social media profile speaks. Like, just go look at your social media profile. If you have kids, you're like, whoa, I worship my kids. That's amazing. Okay. But, but it's even worse than that because here, here's what we've convinced ourselves. We've con- it's like this self-esteem movement where we've convinced ourselves that our children are fragile, little delicate snowflakes, right? One of a kind, special, unique. And we would never want to do anything to hurt them or harm them. We'd never want to make them uncomfortable. We'd never want to make them do anything that maybe is hard for them or difficult for them. So we coddle them. We coddle them. We want to protect them from the big bad world out there. We don't want them to get hurt. And so the kids, this is what happens, probably not in any of your homes, and probably not in my home ever, the kids get to call the shots, right? So you, you don't, we don't make our kids eat anything that they don't want to eat, right? Did you try it? Well, if you tried it, that's all that counts, and pat on the head, and right? They get to decide the bedtime. They get to decide when mom and dad sleep, because if they cry, we can't let them cry, because if they cry too long, then they're going to not trust us, and they're going to grow up to think we're, we don't love them, or whatever it is, and so we stay up with them all night, we do, and they become the center of the universe. Everything they want, they get. If something's hard, we don't make them do it, and here's what happens. The kids get to call the shots. We mask it, and we, we kind of, we play this shell game with it, where we call it like, I don't know, whatever, self-esteem parenting, or whatever it's called now. But the reality is we've convinced the kids that they are the center of the universe. And as I always say, if you convince kids that they are the center, if you treat kids as if they are the center of the universe, they are going to grow up to think they're the center of the universe. And then they're going to grow up and realize they are not the center of the universe. And it is going to be really, really bad for them. Really bad for them. What are parents called to do with their children? Give them what they want? The answer is no. Give them what they need. Make life easy for them all the time? No. Make it hard for them all the time intentionally? Well, sometimes just to kind of get back at them for all the bad stuff they've done to us and all the sleep we've lost and the pains of labor and all that stuff that I've heard about. No, we don't make life hard for them, but we don't protect them from the hard things in life because life is indeed hard. What do we do? We walk with them through the hard things. We walk with them through the hard things. We hold their hands in the midst of it. We teach them. Uh, just a few weeks ago, one of my sons lost a basketball game. It was a big loss, big deal. And we were talking on the way home, and he's like, I said, how do you feel, bud? I feel horrible. I'm like, good. Good. I said, remember that feeling. And decide today that you never want to feel it again. And do everything in your power, it will happen, but do everything in your power to not feel this feeling again, which means work really hard to get better so next time you win. Walk with them through the journey. Walk with them through the hardship. Walk with them through the difficult things so that one day they go to work and they got a boss and they got coworkers and they got to figure this thing out. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm not always going to give you what you want. but I will give you what you need.
I'm not always gonna give you everything that you want. I'm not always gonna give you the desires of your heart, but I will always give you exactly what you need. Last week, driving home from the gathering, and we have four kids, most of you know this, but some of you don't, and our youngest, Lucas, is nine. He's adopted. He's been in our family for four years. Cliff Notes version of this story is his mom had cancer. She came to faith through one of our, through John and Judy's community group here at West Village, baptized, had uh, cancer. It was terminal. She ended up dying. She ended up leaving her son with us. There's a long story there. And Lucas has been in our family for four years. And as he's nine now, and life is hard for him, as you can imagine. And every once in a while, we have like some really, really tricky conversations in our family. And we've been kind of having one for the last, I don't know, three or four weeks uh, as we've been just talking in our family about the way that God works in our lives. We were driving home last week from the gathering. It was just me and Lucas in the car. The other kids went with Kelly. I think they were being punished. They had to go to a grocery store with her. You don't always give kids what you want. You give them what they need. You're going to the superstore. It's like hell on earth. You're going to grow in Jesus because of this. And so Lucas and I are driving home. And um, he looks over to me and he says, Dad, why do you think God let my mom die? That's a legit question. That's a legit, thoughtful, hard question for a nine-year-old to ask. And my answer to him was, Lukey Bean, I don't know, man. I do not know the answer to that question. So here's what I know. I said all throughout Scripture, we see this reality where when bad things happen in our lives, Satan wants to use them to pull us away from God. He wants to use them, and I told him the story of Job, and he knew the story of Job, but he wants to use those things to take us away from God, to get to this point where we get angry, mad, bitter, frustrated with God. God, why would you let this happen to me? God, why did you let all these horrible things happen? Why is my life so hard? And we, we kind of create this victim mentality. I said, but what we see is that God wants to use them in our lives to bring us to this place where we have nowhere else to go but him. Like at the end of Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 50, what, what was intended for evil, God is going to use for good. And I said to Lucas, quoted C.S. Lewis to him, <laughs> nine-year-old. I said, C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone and he uses it to awake a deaf world to the reality of his goodness. And he looked over at me and he said, so I'm not thankful that my mom died. This is what he said. But I do have brothers and a sister now. And I have you and mom. And I know Jesus. He said, I'm not sure those things would have happened any other way. Yeah. But yeah. I wish I had your faith, Lucas. I wish I had a nine-year-old's faith. Because sometimes God doesn't give us what we want, but he gives us what we need. And sometimes we're in this place where we don't understand what God's doing. 
And we're at the end of our rope. And we have nowhere else to turn. And what Jesus is saying here, family, is ask, seek, and knock. And I will be given to you. See, what Jesus never promises, never, not once, does he say there will be no storms in life. What he does say, though, is he will be with us in the storm. Some of you have heard things like, God will never give you more than you can handle. And you might have heard that from a pulpit in a church or at a Bible study. That's a lie from the pit of hell. I actually think that God will often give you more than you can handle so that you will come to the end of yourself and realize that you desperately need him. And you have nowhere else to run. And I'm going to go so far as to say, and this will not be popular, that I think sometimes God gives us more than we can handle, and it's his kindness to us. Because otherwise we would just go on through life not paying him any mind or attention. And his highest goal, his highest ideal, his highest desire for us isn't our happiness. It's the fullness of his presence in our lives. And sometimes, some of us, if you're anything like me, you're just too hard-hearted to get it any other way. Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock, and it will be given. There's this beautiful reality that we see all throughout Scripture that this seems to be the way that God's work, that seems to be the way that God works. When we look at the gospel, what do we see? We see this reality that the way that God works is through redemption. He takes broken things and makes them new. Like if you think back to the life and ministry of Jesus, like after he finishes this sermon, he's going to go on, he's going to do public ministry, he's going to preach, he's going to teach, he's going to heal, he's going to call more people to him, he's going to offend the religious leaders even more. And what ends up happening is he goes to the cross and he dies on the cross. He he goes to the cross and this innocent man, this God man, this perfect man, he goes to the cross, he, he experiences the full measure of the wrath of God, all of the sin of humanity resting on his shoulders. And just think about this for a second. When he's hanging on the cross, when he's hanging there, what are the disciples thinking? What are, what are people thinking? They're not looking at this thinking that this is a good thing. They're thinking that this is an utter failure, that somehow God failed at what he was going to do. They're thinking some of the things that you are thinking right now in the place that you are in. God, where are you? I thought I could trust you. I thought you said you were going to provide for me. I thought you said you were going to meet my needs. This doesn't feel like bread or fish. This feels like a stone. This feels like a snake. This feels like you've turned your back on me. And yet what does God do? He takes what on the surface seems like the most broken and the darkest moment in all of human history and he redeems it for his glory. Jesus goes into the grave and he is resurrected to new life and it is through the brokenness that God works and it is through the dark days that God works and brings about redemption. 
So friends, let, let, let me just ask the question that I think is obvious at this point. Is it possible? Is it possible that this moment you are in right now that seems so dark, seems so hopeless, seems as if God has utterly turned his back on you and forgotten you? Is it possible that right now he's put you in a place where you might ask, where you might seek, where you might knock? For the one who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks the door of his grace, the door of his sufficiency, the door of him will be opened. Is it possible that he's giving you not what you want, but what you need? And his invitation is to come. It's to come. It's to come. I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to close with verse 12. Verse 12, Jesus says this, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And this is essentially Jesus wrapping up this section of his Sermon on the Mount. He starts this in verse, uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 17, and then ends it here. And this is kind of the, the, the bookends of this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount. And look at what he ends with. He says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Let me just read this again. Okay, this is, we call this the golden rule. And we hear this, we get this. This is like, this is like a Jesusism, right? This is a platitude. This goes on the postcard. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, I want you to notice something about this. Okay, this isn't like, uh, this isn't a passive obedience. This is this is not Jesus saying, don't do mean things to other people so other people won't do mean things to you. This is an active obedience. So Jesus is saying, actively do to others what you would want them to do to you. Now keep in mind, again, this is a flow. There's a flow to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, it's going to be really hard to follow me, so you're going to need my sufficiency. You're going to need my grace in order to, to, to actually live out this kingdom life. And here's what he's saying now in verse 12. If you actually do this, if you humble yourself, this, and just hear this, this is a prerequisite to everything that Jesus has been saying in the Sermon on the Mount. If you humble yourself and come to me. That's why he starts the Sermon on the Mount with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Because in order to actually embrace a kingdom life, you have to humble yourself. In order to actually embrace that the dark things going on in your life could actually be from the hand of God that he's giving you not what you need, uh, not what you want, but what you need. You have to actually have a posture of humility. There's no other way to receive the kingdom but through humility. Like if you were here this morning and you think like, I got this. My stuff doesn't stink. You cannot be a follower of Jesus. You can't. You can't experience the fullness of the kingdom. The, the kingdom will not be ushered into your life because you don't actually need it. Jesus can't be king when you are sitting on the throne. And so what Jesus is saying here is when there's this humility, this posture of humility in your life, here's what happens. He will come in. He will be sufficient. He will change you. He will transform you. And then guess what happens next? You will actually do to others what you would want them to do with you, to do to you. In other words, as the spirit changes you and transforms you, as you humble yourself and receive Jesus as king, as he cleans up your heart, which then cleans up your life, as he changes your heart, which then changes your life, you can actually change the world. 
The spirit can actually work through you to live out the kingdom life because this is ultimately a summation of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And there's no other way but through humility. And look at what he says next, and here's where we'll end. For this sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, what Jesus is saying here in this entire section, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, right up till chapter 7, verse 12, is this, is this is the new law. Not that he's replaced the old law, but this is the new law, the law of the kingdom, his new covenant. And in the old law, in the Levitical law, there's this line that flows through Leviticus. It says this, and I don't know if you've ever come across this, and just like, it's one of those head explode kind of moments where it says, therefore be perfect or be holy as your heavenly father is perfect or as your heavenly father is holy. Like, I can't do that. You hear this, you hear what Jesus is saying here. You're like, I can't do that. I can't do that. And this is, this is the beauty of the gospel, friends. This is the beauty of what Jesus is saying, what he has been saying, what he will continue to say for us every single week. You don't have to do anything. You just have to come. You just have to humble yourself and come and sit at the foot of the cross. And that's his invitation. Ask, seek, knock. You're going to find. You're going to receive. The door will. And so will we as a people do that? Will you do that? Will you humble yourself? Will you come to Jesus? Will you acknowledge the fact that you are desperate, desperate need of him? We're going to give us an opportunity to do that right now. Week we do this. Familiarity breeds contempt. And so the way... So way we do this every week, and sometimes we just go through the motions, but don't do that right now. Don't miss this opportunity, whether it's for the first time, the 10,000th time that you need to do this. This is an opportunity Jesus has said to us. We're going to respond in, in a number of ways. We're going we're to sing. We're going to sing about the grace of Jesus. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to sing words that reflect everything we've just talked about. Ken and Rena are going to be in the back. If, if you need anyone to pray for you, they will be back there. They would love to pray for you. We're going to give, as Matt said, if this is your church, then give like Jesus. If it's not, don't worry about it. And communion is the promise. It's, the, it's, the, it's a picture of the promise that God will always answer when we ask. He will always answer when we seek. He will always answer when we knock. Like it's right there in front of us. He will not turn any of us away because of what he did for us on the cross. Like there's nothing you can do. It doesn't matter what you think you've done that disqualifies you from the grace of God. It doesn't matter how far you feel or how broken you feel or how distant you feel or how much in the mud and the mire you feel. You might've been sitting here in these seats and you know, you know you are an utter hypocrite. And Jesus is like, it doesn't matter, man. Get over yourself. Put yourself to the side and come and stare in my face and receive my grace. And maybe for some of you this morning, I even ask you to do that, but the Spirit of God would hunt you down and find you in your seat.
Will you humble yourself? Will we humble <laughs> We thank you that all you ask us to do is be willing. And even for some of us, we can't do that. And in your, you call us to ask, you call us to seek, you call us to find, but, but you are actually coming after us. You are seeking after us. You are knocking on our door. You're in pursuit of us. You're in hot pursuit of us. Even right now in this moment, as we can feel your presence, as the spirit is convicting, as, as we feel this sense that we must respond, that isn't us, that's you. How kind are you? How gracious are you that you would do this? And so I pray for myself, I pray for all of us in this moment that we would respond with full hearts, with glad hearts, with hearts that with hearts that are so thankful for what you have done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said,